morning, everyone. We have to hit the run, or we have to hit the ground running this morning. No time for uh, short stories, quotes, or even a funny message. Uh, we've got to get right into what's happening in the book of Judges, and super quick. Um, the writer of Judges is not assuming you understood or read the book of Joshua. In our scripture, it goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and, and the rest of the books of the Bible, but they're assuming that you may just have the book of Judges, and so they are going to give you more upfront information about what's happening in the book of Judges than you necessarily need, especially if you've already read the book of Joshua. At the end of Joshua chapter 24, Joshua dies and is buried. The book of Judges starts in the first two chapters as a beautiful summary about what kind of is going on in the nation of Israel between the times of Moses and the times of the first kings. And so the first two chapters is basically a cliff notes about what is happening in the book of Judges, the entirety of the book. The first chapter deals with this idea that there's a lack of leadership, and when there's a lack of leadership, um, people are not following through on the Lord's commands, and they start to compromise. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus steps in and says, I'm calling you on your compromise, and you better repent. And the nation of Israel repented, and they wept and mourned over their sin and changed. Further on in the chapter 2, where we're starting up today in Joshua uh, Judges, chapter 2, verse 6 through 9, it recaps kind of the end of the story of the book of Joshua. So we have again the death of Joshua happening in chapter 2, because it really is a summary of the entire book. So if you were looking for a great theme for the book of Judges, all you got to do is read from Judges chapter 2, verse 6, to the beginning of chapter 3. And that is the summary, because the rest of the book of Judges, chapter 3 and onward, is just repeating... No, I shouldn't make it sound like that. It's just repeating. It's telling story after story about how Israel fell into sin and compromise without godly leadership. So as we start in Judges chapter 2, verse 6, realize that we're talking about a big summary of Scripture. So we're looking at a big summary of history, a big summary of what's going on in Israel. Then when we get to chapter 3 next week, we start to look at the details of what that 350 years looked like day to day or judge to judge. So um, the first chapter, big summary, chapter two, big summary, then we get into chapter three, and it's the details about the individual judges. So judges is not confused about history, it knows the timing of history, but the events of this particular verse in chapter two, verse six, really takes us back 40 years in the past. In history, in, in um, Jewish telling of history, they don't always state things chronologically. They often state things topically, like this important thing happened, then this important thing happened, and this important thing happened. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those were dated events, like the first, the second, the third. It's just the big themes of going on in Scripture. Um, have I confused that for anybody? Okay, because that was, I guess, my goal as I'm starting to talk. I'm like, this is totally confusing. Is everybody in Judges chapter 2, verse 6? Let's just start there. Uh, the first few verses reads like this. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, now that would have been happening at the beginning of chapter 1, they were taking possession of the land, which we saw in chapter 1, each to their own inheritance. 
The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. What were the great things that the Lord had done for Israel that these people had witnessed? The parting of the Red Sea. That's pretty huge. Being fed with uh, miraculously from the heavens this stuff called manna and the quails that fed them. The fact their shoes did not wear out for the 40 years of wandering the desert by foot. Amazing miracle. We just don't talk about it very often, but it's amazing. And all those things that God did for Israel during the wilderness journey. The people who saw it while they were alive, Israel was strong. They were victorious. They stood firm in the faith for the entire time. Then we're told in verse 8 and 9, something we already found out in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. Best way to understand that, in relationship to Calvary, if you're thinking of Calvary as Jerusalem, and the greater Pueblo area as the nation of Israel, this would be somewhere in the area of the I-25 Speedway. Does everybody know where that is on the north side of town? I think Purcell and 20, I think it's Purcell and 25 kind of connect in that area. So if you're thinking geographically, that's the far north end of Israel. That's where Joshua was buried in chapter 24 of Joshua, and the story is retold in the book of Judges here in chapter 2. But during that time, I want you to see in verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who, who followed him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done in Israel. So as the leadership was there, probably recounting the stories, recounting God's faithfulness, living in faithfulness, living as if the Lord was indeed still with them, the nation of Israel followed. They loved God. They did not serve other gods. They followed God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were a nation and a people after God's own heart. And they loved God, and they loved one another, and they were victorious in all of their actions. But Joshua dies. And eventually, all of those elders that had followed Joshua, everyone who had seen firsthand what God had done, they don't live forever, do they? Eventually, what happens to them? They die. They die. And their memory fades. Their influence fades. And pretty soon, you go through an entire day without remembering who your great, 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 great grandparents were. And sometimes you go a day without remembering who your great-great-grandparents were. And yes, there are days where you look back and go, I didn't even think once about my great-grandparents. And there are times where you might think, I didn't think of my grandparents today. And there are times where you spend a day and you realize, I didn't even think about my parent who passed away. That's normal. It hurts when you realize that, but their influence is still there in your lives, of course. But there are times when they're gone and 
they're not actively reinforcing their faith in your life because they're not there anymore. That's why Israel set up, as we saw last week, so many times naming towns and rivers and trees and piles of rock after what God had done so no one would forget the influence of God in the life of Israel. But at this moment in Israel's history, after leaving Egypt, going through the wilderness, going to the promised land, starting to conquest the promised land, the leaders who had seen God firsthand had died. And their influence died with them. Starting in verse 10 and 15, 10 through 15 of Joshua, Judges chapter 2, it's going to happen the entire time, we read the following. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That is an amazingly sad verse. An entire generation passed. A great generation, a generation that saw God's presence in a pillar of fire and a cloud saw him, literally saw Moses walk down the mountain glowing radiantly from the holiness of God, experienced worshiping a golden calf and being corrected for it, saw God's hand move. And the next generation, their kids and grandkids grew up not connected with God. They may have known some of the stories, but they didn't have a relationship with God. They may have started following traditions, but they didn't have a relationship with God. That's what it's talking about. That generation lost a personal connection with God. How quickly that happened. One generation. We're not talking 200 years later, all of a sudden they, they left God. That very next generation left God. Look what happens. Verse 11. When there's no personal relationship with God, when you forsake it, when you don't consider it valuable or important, or you just think, those are my grandparents' stories, they're not mine, I don't relate to it, this is what happens. Verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Jehovah and served the Baals. Now, Baal is a gen pretty much can be seen as a generic name for the gods that were worshipped in this land of Canaanite, in this land of the Philistines. Yes, there were gods called Baal, but it's just a generic term for a, a false god, a false idol. And so they turned from worshipping the god of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they started serving and worshipping these false gods. No matter where they found them, they started worshiping. Why did they start worshiping the false gods when they had the mighty hand of Jehovah upon them, when they were named after God? Why did they follow them? Well, the writing was on the wall in chapter 1, wasn't it? Their parents, who had seen all the great victories of God on their behalf, compromised. And they allowed the influence of that culture and society that lived there, that God said, root them out. They left them, lived with them, gave their sons and daughters into marriage with them, 
And those pagan rituals and ideas and celebrations and holidays and festivals and influences in one generation corrupted them. The power and influence of sin cannot be taken lightly. And we can never say, it can't happen to me. And it can't happen to my children. It can't happen to my grandchildren. because it has multiple times in the history of God's people they did evil in the sight of Jehovah and served the Baals they forsook the Lord the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt they followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them and God had warned them that numerous times if you let them stay they will influence you. You will not influence them, you, them for good. They will influence you negatively. You think you're strong enough. You think you're good enough. You think you're brave enough and committed enough. But it's going to happen. If you leave that influence in your life, it will get you. In time, it will get you. And God had told them that 40, 80 years earlier as they're walking through the wilderness. Don't let them influence you. And if you let them stay with you, they will influence you. And they followed and worshipped gods of the people around them. And they aroused the Lord's anger. Okay, earlier I said that one of the scariest verses there is the idea that that generation forsook God. I think this is a little bit scarier. Because we don't want God's anger to be upon us. We want his goodness and mercy and grace and love. We want big hugs from him. But when you turn against God, there is no middle ground. You are either with him or against him. And if you are against him, that is the scariest, dangerous place you can ever exist. Because you are fighting against the God who holds life in the palm of his hand. Who looks at the universe and says, it's but a speck of sand in my existence. You are fighting against holiness. And so when the Lord's anger is against you, that is a bad place to be. There is nothing more terrifying than being on the wrong end of God's relationship. Anger. His anger was against them. Because they had forsook and served Baal and Asheroths. Baal and Asheroths. Mentioned many times in the book of Judges and all through the Kings and Chronicles. Baals is a generic name for God. Asheroths is a generic name for a female representation of a god. Especially fertility gods. And it was wild and rampant, that type of activity in the land of Canaan, when Israel was to go in and take it over for God. And they didn't do it completely. They compromised and left people groups living there, influencing them to worship horrendous and horrific acts against one another and against their children. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And all of that happened in one generation. 
It didn't happen over hundreds of years, a slow trickle. It happened within 40, 50 years at the most. We're told in verse 14, in his anger, that is God's anger, against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. They were getting invaded. There was never peace in their community. Their neighborhoods were constantly under attack. Why? Because God allowed it. God allowed that danger and that frustration and that anxiety and that danger to enter their lives all the time. God allowed it. God brought it to pass. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in <laughs> great distress. Huge understatement in the book of Judges. They were under great distress. Why? Because they were being sold into slavery. Their land was being ravaged and pillaged. They were constantly fighting. And every time they went out to fight and thought that they had the upper hand, God said no and wiped them off the battlefield and they lost. God was making it incredibly uncomfortable for them to live. God is always more concerned with our character than our comfort. That needs to be a life lesson. God is always more concerned with our character than our comfort. And he will make your comfort miserable at times to work on your character. And that's exactly what he was doing to the nation of Israel. He was stressing them out physically. He was giving them troubles and trials and turmoil and slavery and pillaging and ravishing and defeat with the hopes that that discipline and that correction would do what? What's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is to say, God, help! So you cry out to God and say, save me! So that you would be faced with your heart in relationship to God and maybe be convicted of that sin and repent. It wasn't because God was mean or vindictive or was sadistic in some way. He wanted the character of God's people to be back to where it was. And in order to wake them up, sometimes God sends in the hounds of hell in heaven to nip at your heels so that you pay attention. Not every time. You can't say that every difficulty, trial, and tribulation is because of that. Because poor Job faced a lot of it, and Job was a righteous man. But it should always be one of those nagging questions that when you face a hardship, a setback, a trial, something physical or spiritual or even emotional or relational, you should immediately, one of your first questions to God should be, not, why me? But are you trying to work on me? Are you trying to do something here? Because if you are, I want to learn the lesson quick. I don't want to endure this for a long, long time. So if you brought this difficulty and hardship in my life, help me now. Come to my senses so I don't have to go through it again and again and again. There's a purpose behind it. So that I might learn dependence upon God. Every step. The good steps and the tough steps. We always pray for the good steps. 
But God brings in those tough steps, trials, and times to teach us and correct us. And the more we ignore his hand, and the more we reject it as, oh, this is just fluke. Oh, this is just fate. Oh, this is just, oh, everyone goes through it. If we dismiss it as, oh, that's just bad luck, and we don't face God and say, God, is there something in me that you're trying to work on? Because if there is, I want to learn that lesson right now. And if there isn't, then I want you to stay near to me because I can't handle it. The Israelites didn't learn that very often. They were in great distress. And so God, when he hears of his people in great distress, maybe crying out to him, he responds this way in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And basically, that's what the rest of the book of Judges talks about. These judges being raised up that delivers them out of the hands of their oppressors, and the people come back to repentance and say, God, I'm sorry we forsook you. We'll do better this time, and we'll teach our children. But in the end, they don't. And their children repeat the entire same cycle. But verse 16 gives us that hope. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from their ways of their ancestors, whom they had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and way. God them. And the response to all of that from the oppression to it. They sell themselves even more to that compromised relationship of sin and serve false they be. And they repeated that in 50 years when learned. But before you pass too quickly, let's wait to the end of the message and judgment. Because of make us stop judging them. God puts it. He said you do this and this will happen. You do this that will happen. He's the Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. God tells us the backstory of why he left all these there. Because he could have just simply said the word and they would be gone. He was looking for his people's obedience. Are you going to be obedient to me? Or are you going to compromise? Okay, you're going to You broke your word. You broke your bond. You broke your covenant. You're going to remain faithful. You're going to bring 
thorn in your flesh the day you die. Frustration and anxiety and stress. I will have opportunities to change. Every time a radio, every time a volt, every time that they were frustrated was a moment that God said, need to turn back. So it's at a point where God says, I'm going with your choices. He didn't abandon his people. He still heard their prayers. He still listened to them. After judge, after judge, as an example of what Christ would do for us, us. Time again. At the very end of uh, from himself, it says, "These are the nations the Lord left lights who experienced any of." This is probably a good generations after Joshua died. So maybe close to uh, 50, 60, maybe even 80 years the time of Joshua's death. The book of Judges this fact. The Lord left to test all the not experience any of the no, the wars were fought by their grandparents in order to take over the land. And he did this in verse 2 only to teach warfare to the Battle. The Philistines, the Hivites, the Lebanon mountains from Baalon to Baal. No, these are to test the, to see whether they would obey the and which he had given to their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezrites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own to their sons and served their gods. Do you know how these Hittites are verse 5? They're great, 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 great on a boat. They're all of Ham's descendants. Ham's All those family groups just splintered little family trees with roots and influences, but they all came back to plague Israel time and time again. I want to turn real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter. All this to do with says to learn. Eleven. He's talking about the Israelites. These things happen to the Israelites because in the beginning of history. And so then Paul connects history with the New Testament church. He says all of these happen to them as examples. Written down us. Nation realizes we're close to the end. We are close 
to the end and those things that have happened before, all of those examples of this, of living in sin and compromise, being rescued by a judge, having a moment of excitement, and then going headlong back into it, only to be repeated over and over and over again. It says this is an example, and it is a warning. Why would Paul need to warn us through the examples of Israel? It's because we are prone to fall into that same cycle. We're okay. On our and just title Israelite Christian raised us, but having no relationship with God whatsoever. And when sin rears its ugly face, we fall to it and we compromise and we are clueless why tough things happen in our life and we chalk it up to karma and fate instead of repentance and dependence upon warning twelve of you firm yes oh yeah we're doing Has opened, which is common, and God is let you be tempted. But when tempted, He will all way out so that those and the elders come up. The first is, don't think you are falling into that cycle. Think you are. Falling cycle of temptation. Don't think you have the resolve. Once you think you're above it, I guarantee you, you've already started to slip. And that's why Paul adds at the end of those. But the good news is, not done. You're not too far slipped, because God has given his children a way out, crying upon him, calling to him, and asking help. And there is no reminder of help that he gives than the Lord's time. Because we celebrate God sending We celebrate out of temptation. You are tempted says over too far. time you think you're too strong, Every month, at least, true sacrifice is taken to get us that relationship. A relationship that is real. A relationship that is filled with miracles. A relationship that's not just for our parents and grandparents, but for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for that relationship that you have established with us through Christ. I pray, Father, that every time that we are tempted, every time we feel in trouble, every time we feel overwhelmed, we pray out to you first and foremost, save us. Save us not just from 
but save us from temptation and save us from being too stubborn and too arrogant to think we can never fall to compromise. Save us.